morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you're a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. If you're not and you're a member, um, we love you guys. We're praying for you guys. Let us know what we can do to help you guys. The title for today's sermon, as we're walking through 1 Samuel, is Do You Trust God Today? Do you trust God today? Friday, my family got together. We buried my aunt. Her name is Emily. She's from St. Lucia. She's been in the U.S. for a long time. She suffered tremendously with uh, stomach cancer. And I remember seeing her and talking to her, and she mentioned her faith. She trusts in God and believed in God. Even in her sufferings, she made much of Jesus. Even when her family didn't serve God, she made much of Jesus. One time my mom went visit her, and my aunt was with her, and they were crying. She grabbed my aunt's hand from what my mom said, and she said to my aunt, it's okay. I know where I'm going. I'm not afraid for me, but I'm afraid for my family. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know my faith. They asked me to do the funeral, and the first thing that came to my mind was this, fear. You have to understand, when I got saved, several of my family members, I, for some reason, there was a sense of hostility, and this is what Jesus mentioned. When you become a Christian, there is a sword that comes between one and the other father and son, daughter and mother. And some of them believed in a different religion than Christianity. So there was a difficulty. There was a difficulty in my mind of going into a hostile territory, in a sense, and also thinking, will, will they come and know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Will they bow their knees, or will it be a mockery? And I was afraid. My mom called and she said, you know you're preaching to the entire family? I said, yeah, mom, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But I had so many of you praying, praying for me and praying for that event. And now let me tell you this. In death, Miss Emily brought everyone together. Family members that we haven't seen in a long time all came together and I preached the gospel, and it felt as if it was a worship service. My family, they're right here, they can tell you. Amazing thing happened. The Spirit of God moved mightily, and people that I thought would be hostile to the gospel approached me after and talked about the gospel. Some said we have never heard the gospel put in that way ever. And her grandchildren even pulled me aside and said, Thank you for sharing that. They have no clue what it all entails, but they were happy to hear it. Why am I saying this to you? I'm saying this to you because as we are worshiping the Lord, I could not help but think of trusting in God. And what prevents us from trusting in God is our fears and worries. When God has called us to proclaim the glorious news and to trust him, 
And maybe, maybe this morning you're here and you're saying to yourself, man, I, I do not trust God for this, this, and that. I know that God is mighty, but there's no way God can work in this. There's no way God can work in my marriage, and it seems like it's deteriorating. There's no way that God can work in my heart. There's no way that God can work in my circumstances. And I am so thankful for that moment where God says, I am still alive. I am still doing miracles, and I can still proclaim the gospel using you. <laughs> so friends, I am here to share with you that we can trust God today. We have a bad example of this here, but we also have a good example to trust in God today. The 19th, in the 19th century, D.L. Moody was handed, he was handed this newspaper and cut out was this poem and that the person believed that D.L. Moody would really love the poem. And as he read the poem, D.L. Moody realized it was from a man by the name of Edgar Seitz. And Edgar Seitz was a boat captain, but also an itinerant um, Methodist preacher. So he grabbed it and he gave it to Ira D. Sankey, who was a guy who wrote a lot of hymns, and he gave it to him. And Ira D. Sankey turned it into this beautiful hymn, Simply Trusting in Jesus. Can, can I read the hymn for you? It's simple, very simple, but yet very profound. Simply trusting every day, trusting through a stormy way, even when my faith is small, trusting Jesus, that is all. Trusting as moments fly, trusting as the days go by, trusting him, whatever befall, trusting Jesus, that is all. Oh. In 1 Samuel 13, we see a lack of trust in God's, for God's provision and for God's protection by the people of Israel and its king. We see they're lacking in trust. We are told in verse 7 that they followed Saul trembling. They hid in caves and cisterns. We also see Paul's partial obedience in verse 8. We see his impatience as well. But friends, coming closer and don't miss this. Trusting God is one of the truths that we think we understand, but when we are called to do it, we realize it's bigger than what we thought. So I can say, man, I trust in Jesus. Yes, it is simple, but it doesn't make it easy. It is simple in understanding, but it's not easy because of the trials that we encounter in this world. That the world is constantly wanting you, pulling you away from trusting in God. Constantly. Trusting God is essential to the Christian life. However, not because it's simple that makes it easy, right? Especially when the world is consistently causing us to question whether God is good, right? You go through difficulties. Is God good? Are you good, God? Are you good? So we're constantly questioning God's love for us and goodness in our lives. What scripture commands for us to trust God? 
We're commanded to trust God. For example, Psalm 4, 5. Offer right sacrifices, but put your trust in the Lord. This is a command. Put your trust in the Lord. Trust is an aspect of faith. And when you think about faith, you think of knowledge, assent, and trust. So I can have faith in something. For example, I can have faith that the plane that I'm looking at in the sky exists. I can actually go and touch it and say, I believe that it's there. But it's not until I get on that plane and I fly from point A to point B that there is trust. This is why trust is a very important element of faith. And when you think about biblical faith, it involves trusting in God. It is not only saying theologically, I believe God exists, but it's saying, I believe he exists, and I'm walking in that faith. James tells us that even the demons believe that there is a God. But do you think the demons trust God? No. Trusting involves obedience. Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, this is what it states. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. As I'm reading this passage of scripture in verse 13, in chapter 13, I cannot help but think of A.W. Toza's quote. So coming closer and pay close attention to this, think about this. What comes to your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. And what Toza is doing with his quote is meant to wake us up, to call us to examine the connection between our theology, what we think about God, and our practice. So in other words, how do you know that someone really, really loved God? is not only by what they say, which is biblical doctrines are important, but also by what they do. By what they do. So the question is, what are your practices? If you say you believe in God, are there evidence in your life that points to the fact that you trust God? Right? Let me say it another way, and coming close and don't miss this. If someone were to follow you follow you everywhere you go for one week, will there be enough evidence in your life to show that person that you trust God? This morning, I want us to see two points from the text. Point number one, the challenges to trust. The challenges that we face in trusting God. And two, the heart of trust, the heart of trust. And he tells us here how we can trust God even more. So join me as we pray together. Father, we are before you and saying to you that we are weak individuals. We might not want to admit that, but God is when we admit that we are in desperate, we are desperately in need of you, is when we see grace for what it is. I'm reminded of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to pray, yet the Pharisee in his pride talked about all of his accomplishments, but yet it was the tax collector who voiced one phrase, be merciful to me, 
because I am a sinner. So God, I pray that we can say to you, we are dependent on you, O oh Lord, and we are looking for you to move in our lives, O oh Lord. We want to trust you, not just have a head knowledge that you exist, but we want to walk in faith through obedience and trust. God, forgive us because we are weak. God, teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not, and give us what we do not have. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is the challenges to trust. Why don't people trust God? Why don't Christians trust God like they ought to? One author for the Outreach Magazine gives 10 reasons why he believes people do not trust God. First on the list is fear. He said often Christians fear. They're fearful of the outcome. They're fearful of what God is calling them to do. So fear is number one. Two, we worry that things will fall apart. If I move, it will fall apart. Things will fall apart. So, so if I just stay in my little cocoon and do not do anything, everything will be fine. Second, third, he says, we worry that we will fall apart. So it's all about self-preservation. We don't like change. It's what, what makes me feel comfortable. God, don't ask me to do something that is uncomfortable, like sharing the gospel to my neighbors. Now, if I share the gospel to my neighbors, they're going to say hi all the time, and I have to stop and talk to them. I don't want that, God, right? These are some of the problems. We, we are fearful that we will fall apart. He also mentioned our families of origin. And what he means by that is simply because maybe some of you grew up in a household where your parents worried all the time, right? So it's the nurturing. You've been nurtured to worry. It doesn't mean that you blame your parents for this because you're responsible as well. It just means that you grew up by default seeing your parents and people around you worry a lot. So therefore, your family's of origin. He also mentioned past betrayals. Past betrayals. So if someone betrays me, betrays you in the past, you say to yourself, I am shutting everything down. I'm not going to trust anyone. And we bring that same energy in our relationship with God. So if, if we're praying for something and the Lord does not answer, for example, we're praying that my, your nanny or your parent would, would be healed from cancer and, and they die, then all of a sudden you're saying to yourself, God, what's wrong with you, right? So you feel betrayed by God. And therefore, you continue in that thought of betrayal. And here's another one, a distorted image of God. I think this is by far one of the biggest ones. Fear, and I think a distorted image of God. And follow with me. I think there are two distorted images of God. One is that you see God as a genie. So you go to God, and you rub that lamp, and you say, God, I want this. God, I want that. And part of the problem is a prosperity gospel that has really messed a lot of Christians up. So we, we say if we pray hard enough, God is going to give us this. So I'm rubbing the lamp, and if God doesn't show up from that lamp, we get mad. The, the other aspect of that 
is to believe that God is harsh, God is mean, God will not answer. So a distorted image of God will prevent you from trusting in God. There are two things, two ways, right? He also mentions a lack of stillness and silence before God, especially in our westernized culture. Men, we are constantly on the move, constantly. And what we do a lot of times in our life is that we say, we plan our whole week out and we say, God, if you want time with me, you got to follow me. <laughs> you you got to follow my agenda. We never put God in this agenda. He's never the first one. So we are never meditating on the things of God because we're constantly having to move. Everything else come before God. Everything else. Our kids' ball game. Everything else. That's a major problem. Notice this as well. Notice this as well. I think this is important, right? Perfectionism. We, we, we tend, tend to be very, a group of people that we want everything very perfect. If we add God in this perfectionism, it's going to mess up our lives. So, so we don't trust God. And finally, he mentioned denial. Denial. What is your reason for not trusting God this morning? What is your reason? You're afraid to let go? You're afraid that if God has control, that he is going to ask you to write this blank check of your life, and you have to say, God, cash it? Are you afraid that God is going to ask you to do something that you really do not want to do? This is why you are afraid to trust him. Whatever reason that you have for not trusting God, please turn to God. But notice the Israelites. The Israelites did not trust God because of fear. And we see it in Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 7, And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan and to the land of God in Gilead. Saul was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So why are they not trusting God? Because they are fearful. And fear will bring a lack of trust. But stop, Kevin. Do you notice Jonathan, the son of Saul, in this chapter? Don't, don't miss this. Here is Jonathan. And Jonathan, Jonathan gives us a glimmer of hope here. Jonathan shows us how we ought to trust God, right? But here's Saul. Saul has this major problem, and Saul brings this army together. And he is the commander, and his son Jonathan is also the commander. Then they find themselves in a central area of the west of the Jordan River, which was a great place to be because tactically they could attack the Philistines at every direction in every direction. And then after he gathered the people, he told the people to go to your homes until I mobilize you again, until I call you again. But notice Jonathan. Jonathan is in Gibeah. And what we notice here is that Jonathan fought against the Philistines. He fought against them. Now, why is that so significant? Come in closer and don't miss this. This is very important for you to understand. If you remembered earlier on when God told Saul 
that the, that the prophets prophesied, told Saul that he would speak in this great way, he will prophesy altogether, that the Spirit of God will rush upon him, and told Saul that to grab whatever his hand can hold. And I shared this with you when I preached that chapter, that that phrase basically means to fight against the Philistines in Saul's hometown. But Saul did not do it. He was fearful. But who is the one doing it here? It is Jonathan. Saul left, and yet Jonathan fought against the Philistines in his hometown. We see great faith in Jonathan here. And I don't want to give it away, but when you notice chapter 14, it dominates with Jonathan's faith. Even with his armor bearer, that he went and he fought against the Philistines. He, he didn't even tell his dad where he was going. There was great faith here in Jonathan. So Jonathan trusted God. He believed God. I could imagine that Jonathan was thinking to himself, man, God asked you to do this, Dad, and you did not do it. Now we have a chance to do it. I will do it. I will believe God. I will fight against those people. I will trust God. And this is what we must see here. Notice as well what Samuel said to them in chapter 12, verse 24 through 25, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Well, we notice they're doing the opposite, except Jonathan. Except Jonathan. Friends, come in closer. Come in closer and write this down if you can. The fear of the Lord, which is a healthy fear, is not being afraid of him. This is reverence here. The fear of the Lord and our obedience to God are fuels to trusting God. You get it. They're foods to trusting God. So we consume of it every day. How can, I, how can I have reverence in my heart for God? How can I obey God? And the more, the more I pursue these things, the greater my trust will be in God. Take a look at the second point with me. We see the challenges, challenges, right? One particular challenge here for the people of Israel, which is fear. But we, we have many, many challenges that prevented us from trusting in God. But what is the heart of trust here? What is the heart of trust? So we, we transition now, and we notice in verses 8 through 23, the heart of trust is fearing God and obeying God. It's, it's fearing God and obeying God. The old hymn writer stated simply, trusting in Jesus, that's all. And he's right. He's right. Friends, come in closer and write this down if you can. Please do. God is not looking for partial obedience, but wholehearted obedience. Do, do you get this? Or, are you listening? He's not looking for partial obedience, but wholehearted obedience. And what we see here in Saul is partial obedience. So we, we're reading this and we're saying to ourselves, why is Samuel and God so mad at Saul? I mean, at least, at least Saul went to to, to the place where Samuel told him to go. On the seventh day he was there. He was early. 
He was actually early. Is it his fault Samuel was late? So Saul had to do what he needed to do. At least he sacrificed. He did burnt offerings for the Lord. And, and why is it that Samuel and God, they're, they're upset here? And we're thinking to ourselves, well, partial obedience. If God called me to do something, at least I'm in church right now. You know, I, I don't want to confess my sins. I don't want to do any of that. But at least I went to church. At least I open up my Bible. At least I said hello to the person that I really hate. You know, that's partial obedience. At least I didn't gossip on them on Facebook, right? That's, that's partial obedience. No. God is not looking for partial obedience. He's looking for wholehearted obedience. And those with me very carefully. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 10, and as soon as he had finished offering, burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. But I look at the text altogether. It doesn't take two days to sacrifice animals. There's no way possible. I'm thinking this happened on the same day. So Samuel told him to go. I'll meet you on the seventh day. Because Samuel wasn't as quick for enough for Saul, Saul decided, you know what, I'm going to take the role of Samuel, and I'm going to sacrifice animals for the people so we can go to the battle. And I'm thinking, the text doesn't say this, but I'm assuming Samuel appears on the same day because it mentioned immediately after he was done with the burnt sacrifice, Samuel showed up. Samuel showed up. The prophet immediately confronted Saul and asked him, what have you done? That question reminds me of God, Yahweh, in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, and he says, what have you done? And like Adam with the figs, the fig leaves, Saul sought to cover his disobedience with a cloak of religion. This is what he's doing. He's saying, well, well God, Samuel, you know, I, I thought you were going to be late, and we, we needed to go, and, and at, least, at least I did something. I did it by force. I did something. But notice Saul's response in 1 Samuel 13, verses 12 to 12, 11 to 12. And Samuel said, whatever, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. But notice Samuel's rebuke in verses 13 through 12. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he had commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought, don't miss this, this is the heart of this text. It is the heart of it. It is the apex. It is the center. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So, here it is. Saul was reminded, as we need to be today, 
God is interested in motives of the heart. Do you get this? He is interested in the motive of your heart. When you open your Bibles and read, when you just go to church, when you do nice things for people, what is the motive of your heart? Is it to be recognized by others or is it to make much of your God? God is interested in the motive of your heart. And we look at this and we say, man, well, I think Saul did something good, but it's not. What does it mean that God desire a man after his own heart? Which is a very important phrase here. It can mean two things. One in particular, it means that God desires someone of his choosing that will serve him. That will serve him. Saul was chosen because of the fact that the people wanted a king like the other nations. It was unbelieving people who chose Saul. God chose them, Saul, for them. But ultimately, a man after God's own heart is one who obeys God, one who trusts God, one who walks in his way. Here, Samuel is saying this to Saul, simply saying to him that God wants someone who trusts him and obeys him and walks with him. So almost obedience will not count. It will not count. The expression, after God's own heart, can also mean that God desires a king of his choosing. A king of his choosing. So notice this with me. What can we learn from Saul's sin, his sin of disobedience? What can we learn here of Saul's sin of disobedience? This is what we can learn. Saul knew that God had prescribed a certain way to worship him. He decided for himself that he was going to take the place of Samuel. He wanted to do it as quickly as possible to go ahead and fight. He was more concerned with the war than worship. You get this. In the same way for us, God has prescribed ways to worship him. And I've heard people say this often. I worship God in my own way. What do you mean by that? If you're saying you worship God in your own way, such as, man, I just want to be silent and worship God, I get this. But if you're saying I worship God in my own way, if the Bible says to do something, I'm going to do my own thing, that's a problem. For example, I've heard people say to me, I worship God in my own way. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to go to church. I can stay at my home. I can worship God. I can exalt God. And there's truth to that. But when you look at the whole picture, you're saying there's a major problem with that. My private worship at home is intensified with the corporate worship of God's people together. If I am truly saved and I'm making much of God, I want to be in the house of God with God's people. Yes, I can worship in my home, in my job site. I can worship in my car. I can worship when I'm fishing and hunting and doing all of these things. But it doesn't mean that I neglect the corporate worship of God, God's people. He says, do not neglect the fellowship of believers. This is a command. Another way people say that they worship God in their own way is that they say, I don't need to read the Bible. I just like to pray. So I don't read the Bible at all. There's some truth to that. I can worship God simply just by praying. But as a Christian, 
My desire is to know more about God. And the Word of God informs me of who God is. How can I pray to a God that I don't know? How do I know more about this God? It's through His Holy Scripture. And one of the greatest things I can do as a Christian is to pray back Scripture, Holy Scripture. This is exactly what we see the psalmist do. David is always reminding God of his promises. Well, how, how, how in the world did David know God's promises? Because he read the Word. He dedicated an entire chapter, one of the longest chapters in the book of Psalm, Psalm 119, to his love for the Word. So when Christians say, I don't need to read the Bible, I don't read the Bible, I don't do this, I'm like, come on, guys. God has prescribed for us to know him through his word. Yes, there is general revelation. As I walk out and I see all of these beautiful things, I know God has created all of this. But he has given us specific revelation. And specific revelation, special revelation, is his Bible. Nature doesn't tell me that God is sovereign and that God sent his son to die on the cross for my sin. No. Specific revelation tells me. This is why for us, we need to understand the importance of that. So Saul here was more focused on his pursuit of war instead of the sacrificial offering, instead of worshiping God. That's why God is upset. God is saying, man, you're putting me on the back burner. I am fighting this battle for you. These are my people. And before you fight any battle, Get on your knees before me and worship me. Richard Phillips, this is what he mentions. What we do in worship, don't miss this, don't miss this. Coming closer, get this. What we do in worship reveals our beliefs about who God is and what he wants so that our obedience in worship should receive priority in our lives. In our Western culture, we put Worshiping God on the back burner. Oh, my friends, do not do that. Maybe that's why you are riddled with anxiety. Maybe that's why there's no trust in God, because you are not feeding your faith. And the food of faith is what? It is fearing God and obeying God. And one of the clearest ways we can obey God is by reading the Scripture. Hiding his word in our hearts. Objectively, it was more important for God to be worshipped properly than for Israel to survive a war. Do you get this? Worship this God. Exalt him. But what can we learn from Samuel's rebuke? And I love this. I love his rebuke here because we can learn a lot of things. First, notice that foolishness consists of violating the commands of Lord. He calls Saul foolish because Saul violated the commands of the Lord. For example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. That's exactly what we find Saul was doing. He didn't trust God with all his heart, but he leaned on his own understanding. How many times do we do that, right? How many times do we do that? Friends, it is never right to violate God's commands. Never. No matter how tough it is, no matter what the world is telling you, it is never right for us to do it. Let me give you some examples of where we violate the commands of God. 
child raising, dating, marriage, the use of money, and your time. We violate the commands of God. A perfect example of child raising. The Bible says to discipline your children in fear of the Lord. The Bible says that children are called to honor their parents. But today we raise children where children can curse out their parents, where children can be very disrespectful to parents and to everyone else, and parents are like, I'm here to serve them. Let them do whatever. We spoil them so badly. And by doing that, we violate the commands of God. And when you violate the commands of God, these same children that you're spoiling and not teaching them to honor you and honor others, they're going to grow up and they're going to be in your guest room until they're 50 years old. And you have to call the cops to get them out. But it's too late. I'm joking. But in some situations, I think that has happened. But also, I think one of the major reasons, or major consequences of that is that they grow up not respecting people. They cannot keep a job. Because they, don't, they know nothing of submission. You haven't taught them to submit to you. You are a representation of God. And if they honor you, then guess what? Prayerfully one day they will honor God. If they're not respecting you, they won't respect God. If they're not respecting you, they won't respect their bosses. If they're not respecting you, they will respect no one in their lives. So friends, there is a way that we can violate the commands of God. We have a lot of young parents here, including myself, raising young children. It is painful, painful to discipline them sometimes, especially Gabby. Oh, my goodness. They told me when I had a girl, it's going to change everything, and they were right. But we need to spank her. <laughs> but we need to discipline her. And even when we're trying to discipline her, even my boys are trained. When it, whenever Gabby is being disciplined, like recently, like Beth, Spank Gabby and Ezra and Liam. They all started screaming, no, don't spank her. No, we won't spoil Gabby. She's going to get it. She's going to get it. We need to teach her to honor mom and dad. We need to. But what about, what about, what about Dayton? There's another way we violate God's command. In, in Dayton, we say to ourselves, the world says to you, you can go out and sleep with whoever. Test the waters, man. Test, test who you want to be with. Don't, don't listen to the word of God to stay pure, to ask God to send your spouse. And Christians are beginning to do this, listening to what the world says instead of what God says. What, what does God say? God says to remain pure. And if you want a husband, if you want a wife, do not be unequally yoked, but to turn to God and to seek God. But I've seen it where people have compromised here and violate God's command. And they went out and they saw this person and said, oh, you know what, I can change them. It's called missionary dating. If I date that person, I can convert them. And they get married and two years down the road, they realize, oh, I'm in trouble. This person doesn't want to go to church. I'm like, he didn't want to go to church in the first place. You think he wants to do it now? These are some of the issues in where we compromise. Even in marriage, there is this compromise and, and violating God's command. When the Bible says, do not divorce. We say to ourselves, when we say to our spouse, 
I want out because I think I will be happier. No, you will not. Your children will suffer and you will suffer. Do not do it. Work hard on your marriage. And there's a reason why God says do not violate his laws. And when it comes to money and time, we say to ourselves, I am free. I do what I want. I go where I want. I am not a bound servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I waste my money on everything. I find myself in debt, and I absolutely love money. And God says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what he says. To use your time wisely. That's what our God says. So friends, come in closer and get this, please. Get this. When secular ideas conflict with the teaching of God's word, and especially with its clear commands, they are to be seen as dangerous folly. This is why Saul said to, Samuel said to Saul, you are foolish because you are violating God's word. We too are foolish every time we violate God's word. No one wants to be called foolish or a fool. When you violate God's word, yes, you are a fool. This is what he says, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Second reason, second thing we can learn from Samuel's rebuke here is that we see that obedience to God is obedience to God's word. Obedience to God is obedience to God's word. But stop. Because what people say here is, Kevin, when you make a statement like this, you're making a statement as if we are called to worship and idolize the word of God. No, we're not called to worship and idolize the word of God. And I want you to get this and listen to me very carefully. There are some people who love the word of the Lord more than they love the Lord of the word. And that's a problem. Loving the word of the Lord, you love the theology in it. And a lot of times, the ones who love the word of the Lord more than the Lord of the word, they find themselves in certain doctrines that they hold on to, but there's no love for people. When you love the Lord of the word, you will love the word of the Lord in its right context. And, and here specifically, we find that Saul did not love the word of the Lord or even the Lord of the word. So we need to understand that the Bible, we're not called to worship it, but the Bible tells us about this great Lord. So we are thankful for the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We have reverence for the Word of God. Why? Because it is the autobiography of our great God. So a Christian who says, I don't like the Word of God. It was written by men. Well, friends, you do not understand the Word of God nor do you understand the Lord of the Word. You get it. Third, Samuel reminds us that if we want to do God's work, we must do it in accordance with God's Word. So here's the king of Israel who has God's command, and Samuel is upset of, at him because of what he did. He violated the Word of God. And Samuel is saying you need the Word of God to be able to do the work of God. Do you get it? There are Christians who say, 
man, I, I, I just trust the Spirit, and whatever the Spirit tells me to do is what I'm going to do, and, and, and I don't need the Word of God, even if it contradicts the Word. No, the Spirit and the Word works together. So, friends, don't miss this. Here, Samuel is saying we need the Word of God to do the work of God. The Word of God to do the work of God. And finally, fourth, we may be tempted to think that Samuel, and therefore God, was excessive in his rebuke of Saul. Why would they make such a big deal? Simply because, simply because. When you think something is a small matter, such as violating the word of God, God sees it as a big matter, a huge matter, a great matter. When you see something as, well, God, I just half-heartedly served you, that should be good enough, God says, no, I am not pleased with that. So friends, this text helps us see more about the truth of God's word. And if you notice, as we continue to read through the text, you ask yourself, why is Saul so kind of impatient to go and fight the battle? Like, they have no weapons at all. They have acts. They, they're just farmers. Then he has 600 people. These Philistines have thousands of people. Why, why are you rushing? Sh shouldn't that bring you to a point of dependency upon God? Why aren't you going before God like Gideon did? At least Gideon put a fleece out and said, God, do something. Saul's doing none of that. Why are you rushing? So we have enough evidence here for Saul to trust in God. But he's not trusting in God. And as we close, I do want you to see one thing here. The importance here is the man after God's own heart. Don't miss this. I absolutely love this phrase. A lot of people take this phrase out of context and say a man after God's own heart is a one that God loves more than everyone else. No, that's not what it means. What it means is a man who is pursuing the heart of God. What God is saying here is that Saul wasn't a man after his own heart. Saul wasn't pursuing God in trust and obedience and fear. God says there will be one that will come that will be a man after my own heart. The partial fulfillment of that is David. And we know even as a young boy that David saw Goliath and says, why are you all allowing this uncircumcised man to blaspheme my God? What caused David to kill Goliath is the simple fact that he was blaspheming his God. Here is a man after God's own heart. He desires God. He worships God. But that ultimate fulfillment is not in David. That ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus Jesus fulfilled this for us. He was a beloved himself. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Who is this? It's my Jesus, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is Jesus. We see in the Old Testament here, it reveals about Saul's trials and Saul's temptation, but even our Jesus went through intense temptation. The New Testament reveals that to us, him being after God's own heart, the Father's own heart. And we notice when he was tempted in the garden, this is what he said to Satan. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, what is Jesus quoting? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. A man after his own heart loves the word of God. He says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you see. In Luke chapter 4, verse 8, and what is he quoting? He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. The above is actually not 8 verse 3. I said 6, 13, but 8, 3. Then he said again, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In Luke chapter 4, verse 12, he is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He is that perfect man. Jesus' success as a man after God's own heart means that we have a king who reigns secure from an internal throne. So we can worship Jesus. We can exalt Jesus. And when God looks at us, God sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. And when we walk in obedience, we are appropriating that righteousness that's been deposited in us. And God is pleased because of Jesus. He is pleased because of Jesus. But we don't have to be like Saul. But we can be like our Savior, Jesus. We can walk in his path. And he promises to be with us every single day. So friends, turn away from the problem that Saul faced where he did not trust God. And turn to Jesus where you can trust God for your everyday needs. Join me as we pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thankful, God, for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Thankful that we have passages of scriptures like this that we can learn about what it means to trust God, to trust and obey. God, teach us how to do this. Teach us not to violate your word. But if we are lovers of God, we want to obey your word. And when we have disobeyed, Bring a sense of repentance in our heart to have a greater appreciation for the Lord. In your mighty and precious name, amen.